When I used to wear contact lenses, did I ever tell you this? I don't know. <laughs> when I used to wear contact lenses, if my contact lenses got dried out and I didn't have any eye drops handy, I would just turn on because of you and 45 seconds in, I would just start crying a little bit. Oh my God. And immediately like rehydrated contact lens. That is amazing and dark. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. For our first official episode, we thought it'd be a good idea to give our listeners a sense of the type of music that we enjoy as individuals. So today we're talking about flop songs from the artists we love most. Songs by artists that we stand that the general public couldn't stand. This is Flop Redeemer. Hey, Jason. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm are you good. Ready? I am. I mean, as ready as I'll ever be being stuck in the house for what four and a half months now yeah we're i mean you know we were supposed to go back to work at my office tentatively the beginning of july and um we may be looking at october is the last that i heard tentatively again so yeah i mean i i'm i'm secretly kind of loving working from home i don't know how you feel about it i love it I yeah it, it's really um highlighted to me that I'm actually able to be pretty productive on my own independently from home, you know, and not, I don't need to have people constantly hounding me in person. They can hound me just fine via the internet. I mean, they still find ways to reach us. That's for sure. Um, no, I, I totally agree. I'm just so happy to not see anyone. <laughs> I mean, friends aside, I miss seeing friends, but you know, I'm not dying to go back to the office necessarily. I love my coworkers, but you know, with zoom and with everything else, we are actually, I would, I want to say we're more in contact with each other on a day-to-day basis, you know, than we were even before when we were in the office together. <laughs> so, yeah. So at, while we're recording this, we have uh, posted our kind of preview episode. I call it an episode zero over a trailer episode because when I was editing our, our uh, audio down, I realized like, oh, this is going to be much, much longer than a trailer per se. It's actually just kind of a pre a 40 minute preview of like what what this whole podcast is going to be about. Sure. You know, hearing my voice recorded and played back to me for the first time, I had some realizations that I have a huge problem speaking in complete sentences and that rather disappointingly, I see I'm already doing it. You interrupting yourself? Yeah, I, I'm interrupting myself with like tangents, which is what I do when I talk. But I was disappointed that I am one of those people that occasionally speaks sentences as though they're questions. Got it. So I have that thing that I, I feel like teachers in high school used to complain about where you would end a sentence and you'd be like, this is the end of my sentence. Mm. Yeah. And teachers in high school were always like, is that a question, you know? <laughs> and I realized that I tend to do that. And it, I think it's because I often don't know where my thought is going or where it's ending. And I have this real like kind of floating cloud of information and numbers in my brain that I'm trying just to get out of my mouth. And it doesn't always come out in the most coherent way. So there was a lot of trickery on the back end of things in terms of getting some of my sentences to come out clearly in that preview episode and so i'm hoping to improve upon that as we continue to record <laughs> will the listeners know 
<laughs> regarding the aforementioned trickery. Yeah, well, I will know because it will hopefully take me less than a full week to clip out all of the ums <laughs> and all of the tangents and all of the nonsensical things that I was saying. Um, so yeah, I mean, did you, did you have any reactions to hearing yourself for the first time? I didn't find myself as annoying as I thought I would. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it would be a lot more annoying to hear us talk. And uh, it wasn't. I was actually like, oh. No, you have a good voice. And and I think, I don't know. I, I just enjoy, I enjoy the subject matter. I enjoy what we're talking about. And so... You know, I'm 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 looking forward to, you know, figuring this out together and like figuring out what this will be and, you know, eventually being able to do a deep dive on some of these songs where I haven't in a long time. And mm-hmm. it's like I, I feel like I know the my own understanding of why a song didn't work or, you know, even a chance to go back to an artist like who I'm going to talk about today, like Mariah Carey. It's it's someone who's been in the public eye for almost 30 years at this point. And you think you know everything and you think you know what other people know about her. And it was just an interesting and exciting opportunity to go back and be like, Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Or I had forgotten about that or just to go back and like discover things that you hadn't. I mean, since, since the time we recorded um, last, I ended up buying that single that I couldn't find before the Mariah Carey single, everything fades away. And it was only available on like CD through like an individual on Amazon. It came, the CD cover was cracked. It's like, it's literally, it's ancient. It's been loved. It's been loved. The inside of the CD had a little note on the, uh, what do you call the track, the album? The liner notes. The liner notes, yeah. And it was like, be sure to watch for Mariah Carey's Thanksgiving special on NBC, you know, and I remember I was like, I remember watching that. I got my whole family to watch that, you know, in um, whatever it was, 1992 or something like that, 1993 and um, bought a CD player so that I could listen to it because I really can't listen to it anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's but it was just interesting. I, I played it for Adam and he was not as impressed with the song. Yeah. A lot of times those songs, they just hold a special place in your heart, I think, because of how old you were or who you were at the time that you heard them for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you kind of carry those emotions forward with you, even if, you know, the song itself doesn't hold water anymore. But I, I looked, I looked the song up on YouTube and I was like, Oh yeah. Like this is very much like in her, like oeuvre, 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 in her oeuvre (laughs) of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I've been, I've been having a good time taking a deep dive. I feel like researching these things, I have to, for the future, consider what a rabbit hole of information it is to go through all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like, because this week I'll be talking about a Kelly Clarkson song and you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And I was trying to siphon it down to like, what's relevant, what's really relevant to like why this particular song didn't do well. And so there was a little bit of editorializing that I wasn't prepared to do. <laughs> um, but hopefully I'll just wing it. I'm going to wing it today. I'm just going to wing it. Well, we're just, you know what? I think at the end of the day, we are, as we mentioned, we are fans who love these people. We love these songs. And we're just, you know, we're just trying to take an examination, a closer look at some of these things. And so we're going to do our best to provide context. But really, it's it's really sort of an exploration of the music we love and that we think other people will enjoy. So... Yeah. 
Well said. Maybe we can get into it. Well, okay. One last thing. Um, I've got two things actually. (laughs) So we misspoke on that last episode. Um, and I was thinking like, maybe we need to earmark some time for like flop retractions or (laughs) flop revisions. Um, so in the previous episode, I had talked about a tribute performance to Destiny's Child by Amarie, Tierra Marie, and Rihanna. In my mind, it was a big, full Destiny's Child tribute thing, but it was actually the World Music Awards in 2005. That makes sense. Because it also, I was going to say, I don't think it was on BET. No, no, it was it was not. It, but it was it was during the Destiny's Fulfilled era. Oh, yes. God, I could be wrong about that. I didn't look into it. That but, makes sense. It was it was 2005. It was the World Music Awards. Second thing, I I was curious. I could not find any evidence of a version of Rihanna's Unfaithful that was recorded by Usher or Brandy. Hmm. And I know those things are kind of like lost to the ages sometimes. Like I will find it. Okay. So that I will find it. So that may not be a a flop retraction, but we'll, we'll we shall see. So the last thing that I wanted to address is that we won't be playing any of the songs that we're talking about in the podcast itself. But we will be posting to our website, flopperedeemer.com, either YouTube videos or Spotify links to the songs themselves so that you can give those artists a stream if you like, give them a, you know, the fraction of the cent that they are owed for every time that their song is streamed. But uh, I think that's it for what I wanted to cover in our little intro discussion. Okay. All right. Oh, it's burning up in here. I know my brain, my brain. Okay. So let's take a break. All right. So we're back and we're going to just get into it. Okay. So the song that I wanted to talk about today is Never Again by Kelly Clarkson. Oh. Familiar? Yes. It's not one of my, I love Kelly Clarkson. It's not one of my favorites. Okay. So Never Again is um, the lead single from Kelly Clarkson's third studio album, My December. The single was released on April 24th, 2007, and the full album was released on June 22nd, 2007 from RCA Records. The single itself, it peaks at number eight on the Billboard Hot 100, mm-hmm. and It's funny because looking at that number, I was like, that's not too bad. Mm -hmm. But relative to how she had been doing previously, that was actually kind of, at best, a moderate success. And it peaks at number eight because of the strong influence of digital downloads, despite its weak performance on radio. So this is a song that premieres on KISS FM here in LA, but it doesn't get a lot of radio support after that. Like radio stations really stop playing it. Um, It spends a total of 16 weeks on the Billboard charts. And if you look at that compared to something like Since You've Been Gone, the lead single off of um, Breakaway, her previous album, that song peaked at number two on the Hot 100. It spent six weeks at number one on the pop singles chart, and it stayed in the top 10 for over 20 weeks. So following its mediocre performance, um, her label quickly releases the song Sober as the second single. And they release this on July 10th, which is only five weeks after Never Again debuts. So in a sense, it's almost like they were trying to save the performance of the album by quickly coming up with a second single that could kind of prove to listeners and fans like, oh no, this, you know, Never Again isn't everything that you're getting out of my December. You know, Mm -hmm. they wanted to kind of reassure the fans in that way. 
But unfortunately, like Sober really doesn't go anywhere. And then that's actually the last single from My December released in the United States. So when My December comes out, it debuts on the Billboard 200 at number two. It actually sells more than Breakaway sold in its first week, but it sells less than Thankful, which is Kelly Clarkson's debut album. It missed the number one spot because of uh, Hannah Montana 2, Meet Miley Cyrus. Interesting fact. <laughs> wow. Her label releases a music video directed by Joseph Kahn. And, um, you know, this is an era heavily driven by like TRL and making the video culture. And at that time, I feel like Joseph Kahn was really at the forefront of that making the video TRL culture. You know, he was he had done um, Everybody Backstreet's Back by the Backstreet Boys. He did The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica. He did Say My Name by Destiny's Child. He did Doesn't Really Matter by Janet Jackson. And so this video is served to MTV. It does relatively well, but I what I thought was really fascinating, and I had kind of forgotten this, I rewatched the video this week, is that the video is, it's got a really creepy vibe to it. So the concept of the video is that Kelly Clarkson is drowned in her bathtub by her boyfriend and throughout the rest of the video, she haunts him as he flees to the airport to meet his mistress. Really weirdly dark imagery for a music video. But as you'll see later, like this is part of a trend of Kelly Clarkson's music moving into a deeper, darker time for my the My December era. Mm-hmm. And you said this was during the Clive Davis thing, right? Or I guess we'll get into oh, that. Oh, that, that, that comes okay. later. I'll, I'll, co- okay. I'll, I'll cover Clive okay. Davis. Believe you me. so the so the so the song itself never again it's uh reportedly about a failed relationship with david hodges who's a former member of evanescence and also uh a co-writer on kelly clarkson's single because of you from the breakaway album so in 2007 uh, kelly clarkson does an interview with just jared and she says i met this musician not a famous musician he doesn't even deserve to be named and i thought he was totally into me and then you find out oh god that he has this whole other relationship on the side and that he's only dating you to get into pictures and to become famous so she she's really not holding back uh, in this in this particular period I think that there's indications that the darker tone of this song and this whole album were really reflective of that period of time that she was in. She was coming off of what was reported to be an extremely exhausting tour. She had been on this incredibly successful stadium tour for Breakaway um, that went through 2005 and 2006, you know, and in the midst of this, her relationship has fallen apart. Um, she's feeling very lonely. She's writing these very, very sad songs and crying in the bathrooms at, you know, in the stadiums that she's touring. Um, so overall, like this, this song and this album becomes a reflection of that time in her life, you know, for the general public, this is not what they wanted from Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. I came up with like a few ideas about why this song flopped. The first one being just the stronger rock influence of this song and of this album in general. It's something that I don't think necessarily resonated with me at the time that the song came out. Just how different it was from a song like Since You've Been Gone, you know? So, you know, she she goes into heavier rock instrumentation with this album. Um, she uses almost entirely new personnel to uh, write and produce this album. And um, she's definitely leaning more into kind of rock influences. Versus like the pop that she had really 
kind of highlighted when she came out on American Idol. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and it's a little bit of a conundrum, I think, in general to identify at this point in time, you know, back in the My December era, who Kelly Clarkson is as mm. an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, we famously know Kelly Clarkson as the winner of that first season of American Idol. And she did the majority of those live performances with kind of R&B soul songs. She was doing Aretha. She was doing um, Gladys Knight. She was doing Otis Redding songs. And I think that based on that, I would have thought that maybe she would have come out with more of an R&B tinged album, Mm -hmm. which actually, and let's go into that because listening back to that first album of of hers, listening back to the Thankful album, you know, that was the album that had Miss Independent on it. Um, a moment like this before your love anytime which were all slightly more pop slightly r&b type of songs but mostly like soaring ballads you know yeah they were maybe the kind of songs that were in the vein of like a celine dion song or like hero by mariah carey like it was definitely that kind of vibe like like, almost like an adult contemporary pop Mm -hmm. you know Mm-hmm. But then when she has her big breakthrough with Breakaway um, and the single Since You've Been Gone, that's the first time that we really think like, oh, Kelly Clarkson is making pop with a, a tiny bit of a rock edge to it. Just a, just a tiny, tiny bit, mm-hmm. you know, but very, very much in the pedigree of pop. She's she's working on that song with Max Martin and Dr. Luke, mm-hmm. who we know produce some of the biggest pop hits of like the 2000s and 2010s, right? Working with like Britney Spears, Katy Perry, Kesha. So our perception of Kelly Clarkson in, in that vein, it only really stems from that one song and, or that one album. Basically we have, um, you know, breakaway since you've been gone um, behind these hazel eyes. But in my mind, never again, isn't an illogical progression from that. Mm Mm-hmm. It just takes her further away from where we knew her on American Idol and it brings her more solidly into the rock genre, I think. Whether or not that's believable, I think, is up for debate. I think that over time she's proven to be more successful as a pop artist with little bits and pieces of rock versus a rock artist who skews pop. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was also, I mean, you mentioned Evanescence back there and it's like that was what was popular yeah i mean the ballads that you know when she won american idol the ballads that she led with you know that was what was expected and that was maybe what contributed to her win on american idol but from a popular music standpoint that wasn't what was popular for a singer i want to say like a uh a pop singer at that time, pop female artist. Yeah. Can I just interject that one of the big reasons that she won American Idol is because Tamira Gray was eliminated in the top four (laughs) and that Nikki McKibben made the top three. That was something that I was like, do I talk about this? I, I, I I know I'm a Kelly Clarkson Stan, but I was voting for, I was voting for Tamira Gray up until the episode that Tamira Gray was eliminated. See, it's it's hard for me because I didn't really watch American Idol until I remember at the time I watched the last episode where she won. But I didn't I didn't I I remember the whole time it was out I was like this is so stupid whatever. So I didn't pay attention until season 2. And um 
you know, I always liked, I liked Kelly Clarkson. I liked Tamira Gray. Um, she had like an album that came out after. It I was believe. not good. Well, yeah. I, maybe I I'll take. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll revisit that for the show. I should look up to my regrets. Oh, there you go. I remember when it came out, feeling very underwhelmed because I don't think that she had. I don't think that she had a huge amount of support in terms of catapulting her career in the way that in the way that Kelly Clarkson did. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't also ran on a show that was in the that was in its first season. It's not like some of these others now where where, you know, by the time you make it to a certain point in American Idol, you can basically assume that, you know, you'll, you've received enough exposure. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. We can debate the the efficacy of making it even to the top two or winning American Idol at this point. But yeah, because I think you'll see, you know, over time, it does have a waning mm-hmm. impact on the careers of its contestants. But, mm-hmm. you know. I remember Tamira Gray singing uh, "House Is Not a Home." Like, oh yes, life life changing moment for me. Wait, not exaggerating. She was. Look it up. It's 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 amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was like the break. That was like a breakthrough moment. I think. I mean, I could. I maybe I'll revisit it and realize it was garbage. But no, 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 um, no. It was very good. I remember that. I, you know, this is again. This is an example of where like I thought for some reason she was. In a different season of American Idol. She was a season one front runner up until the point that Nikki McKibben was advanced into the top three. And then it was like, it was like your favorite political candidate getting knocked out mm-hmm. during the primaries. And then you have to like hold your nose and vote for Kelly Clarkson. But I, I, I did not hold my, I came around, I came around to Kelly Clarkson, but I think at the time that she won, I really didn't necessarily see the potential in her. Mm-hmm. She's she is a, an amazing vocalist. She's very very she's got a very powerful voice. I don't think her voice was ever really right for R&B music. I don't necessarily hear that voice and think, "Oh yeah, this is going to be like an Aretha song," you know. She has a soulfulness. Mm-hmm. She has a, you know, obviously she can belt. She has the range. And I think because of that, it's assumed that she can do soul and r&b yeah and she can to some extent but she's really more of like a not quite janice joplin because janice joplin's her own thing there's a rough a rougher she's rougher yeah um and and kelly has a more refinement but... i mean later on there are comparisons to kelly clarkson as like pat benatar yeah 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 there's a soulfulness there a little bit of a rock edge to it but definitely pop nancy wilson and Hart. Mm. you know very much like that. It's like there's a there's a bluesiness, more bluesy, less rhythmy. <laughs> so she later did try to put out an R and B soul album, The Meaning of Life, her her latest album, mm. or not her latest album. No, maybe it is her latest album. I did like that album. It's okay. I, I don't know that I like it as a Kelly Clarkson album. Is the only thing I like the he, is it the heat? Mm. Um, yeah. I need more heat from you, baby. Wait. Are we going to get charged royalties for that? I'll cut it. I'll cut it. <laughs> I think, no, no, no. I think we're fine. Yeah. I think we're fine. <laughs> I think this is where you you said a lot of the backstory, but I think it's like, it is hard. I think the crux of it is it is hard to place what kind of artist she is. Yeah. And especially so then, like she's, she's one of those artists who has a great voice, an iconic voice, but is maybe always overlooked. And then you, particularly at this point in, in her career, when she was figuring out, who she wanted to be as an artist, who her, maybe her management will let her be as an artist. Yeah. I mean, she is one of those artists that could sing the metaphorical phone book, right? Yeah. 
And just because you could sing the phone book, it doesn't mean that you should. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is the perils of being a versatile, strong vocalist, probably. Oh, woe is them. The, you know, the vocalists that have the greatest voices on earth. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. you know, but it, it is, it is interesting to think like you could sing anything, but the question is like, is the public going to buy it? Mm -hmm. And I think where we land with Never Again is that she was going for this harder rock vibe. It fit in with where she was in her personal life. It didn't necessarily seem discontinuous from the stuff she was doing with Since You've Been Gone or Behind These Hazel Eyes. Like It just felt like maybe the next progression of that. Mm -hmm. And it was a gamble that she took, you know? The, the second thing that I want to talk about in terms of why this song potentially flopped is that this song and the album as a whole had a very dark tone, a much darker tone than I think we had been used to getting from her. Mm -hmm. When I listened to Never Again Over Again this week, my immediate thought was like, oh, she was thinking about um, You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. Mm. This song lyrically and musically, it shares a lot with that song in terms of hmm. how it approaches a response to a breakup. Yeah. In that it has a lot of rage and it's about wrath and a woman's, the, you know, the power of a woman scorned a little bit, you know, and really going after the guy, going after the woman that he left you for, you know, and not not holding back at all. Mm -hmm. In thinking of the continuity between the lead single Since You've Been Gone to the lead single Never Again, the distinction that I kind of made in my head was Since You've Been Gone is the breakup song where you are 50% in denial about how over this breakup you are, right? You're going to call up your best friends and say like, let's go to Rage on Friday night and get fucked up on $2 apple martinis <laughs> and just dance our asses off because I'm so over that guy. He's nothing to me, mm -hmm. right? And you get there, you down some $2 apple martinis. It's like 1130. You hear since you've been gone and you grab your friend's hands, you run to the dance floor and you jump up and down like an idiot because there is no other way to dance to since you've been gone than to jump up and down like a drunk idiot. Whereas never again is like when you are alone in your apartment at 2 a.m. looking your, at your ex's Facebook profile and you're just silently thinking to yourself about going out and slashing his tires. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was before he cheats, but before before he cheats, but without that sass, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just the rage. Yeah. <laughs> before he cheats. And and so like overall, the album, you really have to be in the headspace, I think, to enjoy this album. And I don't know what that says about me that when this album came out, I really enjoyed this album. Mm. But again, like this is where she was in her life at that point, you know, and. I think that artistically, I respect that she wanted her album to reflect that um, against the wishes, by the way, of her label, which is my next point about why I think that this album didn't do very well. Mm -hmm. Because Never Again and the whole album My December, it was um, plagued by these rumors that Clive Davis and her label wanted to shelve the whole album, that they just didn't like it. You know, Kelly reportedly really dug in her heels and 
really wanted to go out on her own on this album. She wanted to write this album. She wanted to work with the people that she wanted to work with on this album. Yeah. And she didn't really want to compromise that, mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of her label. And um, reportedly, Clive Davis wanted to scrap the whole, whole album. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, he offered Kelly Clarkson $10 million to remove five songs from the album and to replace them with songs of his choosing. Mm-hmm. One of which was later like a flop song for uh, Lindsay Lohan. Which one? Um, it's a song you've never heard of. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I, I wonder because, you know, she was taking such full control over the songwriting, the production and everything of it. Like, I almost wonder if the song, um, the song or the album would have um, performed better if it had just been produced by someone different. Mm-hmm. Basically take the same song, you know, do the instrumentation a little bit differently, do the, do the production a little bit differently because again, to lean back into the idea that this is more of a rock song with tinges of pop to it, you know, the instrumentation of it's very, very raw. It's got, it's got this looseness to it that I feel like feels very alternative rock Mm -hmm. in a way that when I think of rock songs that make it onto pop radio, when I think of things like, um, Maroon five, for example, Mm -hmm. like the more, the more that Maroon five goes on, like the more pop, their song sound because they're removing like live drum tracks. They don't really have a lot of live drum tracks in their songs. And even just like the guitar tracks or the baseline tracks, like are so precise mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. polished that it really, it really has a pop feel to it despite technically being a rock song. Yeah. Like they can probably go out on tour and perform all those songs as pure mm-hmm. rock songs. But at least when you hear it on the radio, when you hear it on uh, the album, you're hearing this very polished pop side of things. So I wonder if, you know, my December as a whole could have benefited from that. Yeah. But I mean, Kelly Clarkson in this period of time, she's not afraid to be very outspoken. She goes, she goes to the press and in interviews is talking very openly about the fact that getting my, getting my December released in the way that she wanted it was a struggle with her label. She, she mentions things like, um, someone at her label hearing never again and then negatively comparing it to Pat Benatar, Mm -hmm. basically saying like, you sound too much like Pat Benatar and that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But Kelly Clarkson being like, I don't understand why that's bad. Pat Benatar is amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, and she, she, she talks about the fact that, uh, Clive Davis really didn't respect her as a songwriter, Mm -hmm. you know, that she recalled that even during the production of breakaway, he really didn't like the song because of you that she had co-written. He called it shit because it didn't rhyme. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of exemplifies the lack of respect that she was getting yeah. as kind of uh, being in control of her own artistic vision for her music. Yeah. And yeah. And I think it's a, it's an interesting sort of thing where it's like, what's the measure of success for this album? For Kelly Clarkson, it was, as you mentioned, it was like her artistic vision. You know, it was what she wanted to release. It's you know, she fought for control. Mm -hmm. And so in that aspect, I don't think it's not, I mean, obviously she's never disavowed this album. She loves it and her fans still love it. Was it a commercial success? No. So in, in one sense, her victory, I mean, she was right. She's satisfied. She has the satisfaction that like, this is something she wanted to do. Um, But also Clive Davis was right in that the public, the general public outside of her audience Mm -hmm. just, that wasn't what they wanted to hear from her. And and I think it comes back to, well, who, I mean, it really should be, if the artist is happy with it and remains happy with it, 
Yeah. Is that is that all that matters, right? On the one hand, you're making art. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you're making a product. Mm-hmm. You're only allowed to make your art in as much as you have a product that sells, you know? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of artists can relate to that, artists of all kinds. Ultimately, I, 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 be, I believe for the sake of the album release, Clive Davis and Kelly Clarkson, they publicly kind of bury the hatchet. Kelly Clarkson says something to the effect of like, that she has this really deep respect for Clive Davis. Because don't forget, Clive Davis has discovered some of, or is credited with discovering some of the most iconic artists mm-hmm. of pop music, right? So she declares her undying respect for him. But she also says, you know, that this is not a guy that she's having over for a backyard barbecue, mm-hmm. you know, at her house anytime soon. So she kind of hedges her bet, but they do they do kind of uh, publicly bury the hatchet on that. Until much later, I, I, I was reading, you know, that, um, after the publication of Clive Davis's autobiography, yeah, I guess he has some less yeah. than kind things to say about Kelly Clarkson and there, and it just kind of revives, revives the whole dispute. And I think especially now that Kelly Clarkson has moved on from RCA and has moved on from Clive Davis, she feels a little bit more candid in speaking out about what a difficult time that was for her. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think she's gotten a lot of support from other artists who've experienced that from Clive. And I think, I think even as we, as just music fans, you know, get further and further away from some of our, from, from, you know, the heydays of some of our favorite artists, you look, you know, Clive was obviously responsible to a great extent for Whitney Houston's career Mm -hmm. and the huge commercial success that she was came at what cost. And I think as we, you know, as these different, you know, documentaries and different, you know, firsthand accounts kind of tell and just even what Whitney has said, this desire, this sort of Svengali-like thing that he had where kind of forced her into this polished image and these perfectly crafted pop songs that really weren't true to who she was created so much tension that that's what she ended up fighting the rest of her life, right? And why, like, as she got later in her career and released albums that were maybe more around what she actually liked, she was at a disadvantage because people really didn't want to hear that stuff Mm -hmm. because she'd never been allowed to cultivate that as an artist herself, right? She just sang the songs. Yeah. (laughs) R.I.P. R.I.P. So in the immediate aftermath of um, My December and Never Again, um, a few things happen. One of which is that um, Kelly Clarkson parts ways with her manager, uh, Jeff Quatinetz. And it's at this point that she moves on to um, Narvel Blackstock, who at the time was married to Reba McIntyre. Also famously the father of Kelly Clarkson's now estranged husband. Yeah. Right. So this all becomes very, this all becomes very important. Like essentially if never again had never happened, she might have never moved on to Norval Blackstock, might have uh, never married. Um, oh, no, I can't even remember her husband's name. Yeah, I don't remember. But they're getting a divorce now. So, yeah, it doesn't matter. The former the former Mr. Kelly Clarkson, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so she parts ways with her management because obviously, to a certain extent, your management has led you this far, letting you believe that this was a good a good move for your career and it proved not to be because shortly after never again fails to take hold with the the uh american psyche her whole stadium tour for my december is canceled yeah ostensibly you know the poor ticket sales could also have been due to the fact that she had just concluded a very very long successful stadium tour for breakaway you know they might not have let enough time 
elapsed between that tour and the next tour. But nonetheless, like it all reflects very poorly on this song and that album in general. Mm -hmm. So then also in the aftermath of this era is where Kelly Clarkson's music goes after this, because after my December, after uh, sober fails as the second single from my December, the next single that she releases is uh, 2009's My Life Would Suck Without You, which is very much like the sister song to um, Since You've Been Gone, mm -hmm. you know, because it is her return to Max Martin and Dr. Luke. It's her return to, I would say, an even more pop sound than she had been doing with Breakaway. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a it, you know, it's almost like a, a huge reaction to the rock sound that she was going with mm -hmm. on Never Again. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, let's let's pull way, way mm -hmm. back from mm -hmm. that. Right. And let's let's lead off with my life would suck without you, which is even thematically like an antithesis to Never Again. Right. It's basically her saying like her like reconciling with that boyfriend that she's just bitching about and Never Again or mm -hmm. the boyfriend that she's saying you know, she can breathe again, you know, without this boyfriend in her life. And since he'd been gone, you know, Kelly Clarkson, she notably removes her own writing credit from this song. Mm -hmm. And even so even then, even in 2009, Kelly Clarkson kind of um, making moves to show that she didn't really want to be associated with Dr. Luke. Like she comes out more explicitly later, especially um, once the whole Kesha allegation Mm -hmm. comes out against Dr. Luke. Mm -hmm. Kelly Clarkson is much more explicit saying that the way that she felt about Dr. Luke himself was one of the reasons that she didn't want to take any writing credit for My Life Would Suck Without You. Mm. But, you know, My Life Would Suck Without You, that was a huge return for her. Yeah. And I think that from a label standpoint, it probably cemented the idea that that's who she had to be as a recording artist. Yeah. And basically kind of like stay away from that whole never again thing stay away from my december more of this you know and i don't hate it i mean again like i think that when you look at who kelly clarkson is as a personality and the way that her voice sounds and how i want to feel listening to pop music that's what i get from her more mainstream pop hits right mm -hmm. i don't always want to listen to a song and feel like garbage yeah yeah, there's 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 a time and a place for that. And I think that there's room for great songs to be made in that vein. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about commercial commercial success, you want your happy, cheery girl from Burleson, Texas to sound happy and cheery, even when she's singing about her no good ex-boyfriend, you know? Yeah. Oh, except when she's singing about her deadbeat dad. That one? makes me cry we love it we love it when kelly clarkson sings about her deadbeat dad mm -hmm. because of you and piece by piece right well i think the reason we love it is because you know we talked at the top about how you know we expect she doesn't necessarily turn in turn in an r&b or soulful performance but she really can interpret a song and put a lot of emotion into a song and take you on an emotional journey with the song mm -hmm. so i think that's a huge skill obviously that's i think that's one of the reasons she is sort of underrated yeah you know there's so much about the delivery of each song that really helps to to sell it more than maybe the actual song would normally yeah so that's so that's kelly clarkson 
R&B cover girl to pop rock hit maker to rock pop failure back to pop rock uh, success. Now, uh, you know, I'm really happy that she's able to diversify her career. She's doing the voice. She's doing her talk show. Well, she won. She won an Emmy, I think. She's getting Emmys. Yeah. She's got Grammys. Yeah. Uh, she just needs that Oscar and that Tony. Um, you know, and she's on her way to being Whoopi Goldberg. There you go. And that that's my that's my rant about Kelly Clarkson. Never again. <laughs> Thank you. All right. It's time. For, it's time to take a break. back we are back the song that i'm gonna talk about today is a song by mariah carey called if it's over and i don't have half of what you wrote down or what you talked about for this song for never again it's okay it's okay okay. mariah carey she exists in your heart yeah no i think it's this is so so the reason i want to talk about if it's over if it's over is a song that was performed by Mariah Carey. The first time I became aware of it was it was performed by her on MTV Unplugged. Mm -hmm. And the MTV Unplugged was a TV show that was on MTV where artists were invited to come in and record in front of a live studio audience, you know, a short set of songs. I don't want to say acoustically. They just did it live, you know? And it was a great showcase at the time for, you know, artists that, you know, it it was just an intimate way of seeing an artist in a way that like really wasn't available at the time outside of MTV Unplugged. Mm-hmm. And so in 92, she comes out with this song called If It's Over. And actually, I'm going to back up. The song itself was released on Mariah's second album, Emotions, in 1991. Okay. It was supposed to be a single, but Emotions, I think you have to remember. So Mariah Carey had burst onto the scene Uh, a year before with the Mariah Carey self-titled album. Iconic. um, In 1990, featuring Visions of Love, among other songs. And it was, as you mentioned, it was iconic. And it kind of, you know, it was the first, I mean, it was a huge, it it, it went to number one. It had, let's see, it had four singles that went to number one um, on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. It was the best-selling album in the U.S. in 91, and it sold over 15 million copies. I mean, it was a revelation when it came out. Yeah. We really had never heard, or not never, but we hadn't heard a vocalist like that. I mean, granted, I was 10. But it's true. I was 10 years old, but we had not heard such a powerful vocalist Mm -hmm. in a long time. Mm -hmm. Had not. And I certainly had not. (laughs) Like, I remember, you know, growing up evangelical. We weren't allowed to listen, really, to non-secular music that wasn't from the 60s or on the oldie station. Everything, you know, that was sort of contemporary was sort of off limits. And one day while, like, driving home from the grocery store with my parents, we were listening to the radio, and I happened to catch a snippet of Vision of Love. I would have been, like, eight. And I had never heard anyone sing like that. I didn't know people could sing like that. I didn't know it was possible. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, this was before the internet. I don't know how I figured out who it was. I think she ended up just being on TV at some point. But like, I I had no idea who she was until I heard the song again. And, you know, so I'd I'd sort of followed Mariah at that point. And I, I knew I wanted to buy her album. 
But, you know, being eight or nine and coming from a fairly conservative family, we didn't really buy albums Mm -hmm. or go to the record store. Vision vision of love. How scandalous. Right? I had a vision of love and it was not about Jesus. And so get that out of the CD player. Can you imagine? Like, like, was that like a salacious, was there like a salacious inference there? Like, No, but I will tell you that when eventually Mariah Carey's Hero came out, I was told that the line, there's a hero if you look inside your heart was really kind of slanderous against Jesus. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus should be in your heart. And you don't believe in yourself, you believe in Jesus. But Jesus is a hero. (laughs) He could be there too. There's room for lots of things in your heart. You know what? Even at the age of 10, I was like, uh, yeah, no, that doesn't hold water for me. (laughs) You still need to like yourself. You know, I can like Jesus and like myself. Thank you. So... I mean, this is all a roundabout way of saying the first album I ever bought was Mariah Carey's MTV Unplugged album. You rebel. I know. It came, my dad took me to Kmart. I bought an RCA boombox and the MTV Unplugged album on the same day. And I came home and I was a little upset because, you know, not me not having real access to pop music at the time, I didn't realize I was buying sort of an album of this concert and not not the two albums she'd already released at that point, mm-hmm. right? But the interesting story about the MTV Unplugged performance is that Mariah had a huge hit with um, the Mariah Carey album, sold 15 million copies. Emotions comes out. The first single, Emotions, goes to number one. So she's the first artist to have their five first singles go to number one in history, right? Mm-hmm. After that, she releases Make It Happen, a song which I love, but it only went to number eight. Crazy. And record the record company freaked out because they're like, okay, we need to change, right? Like something, something's going wrong. And in the end, the actual album didn't do as well as... You know, it was, it was starting to falter. And while people were like still blown away by her voice... There had started to be a lot of criticism about could she actually sing live? Mm-hmm. Because she did not do a world tour to support the first album. And when Emotions came out, she also refused to do a tour. And, you know, at the time she, you know, she she talked about it being stage fright. She talked about how, you know, vocally, you know, challenging the the songs were. And people were like, uh-huh, you really can't sing, right? Yeah, I mean. I think it's important to remember that this is all happening around the same time that the whole Millie Vanilli scandal is happening. Yes. Yes. Millie Vanilli famously ghosts, you know, they had ghost singers. Ghost singers. For them. Um, I remember also at the same time, that's when you first, I that's when I first recall there being suspicions around like auto-tuning. Mm. Um, I remember that being that the new kids on the block actually were subjected to a little bit of scrutiny around like, is this what you guys really sound like? Mm-hmm. Or is this, mm-hmm. are all of your vocals kind of manufactured in the studio? Mm-hmm. And I think that that definitely did spill over to someone like Mariah. Yeah. Who was incredible. Yeah. Was doing things with her voice that you just, you'd never heard yeah. someone do like a whistle. Well, Minnie Ripperton maybe. Yeah. A whistle, but certainly not in a pop setting and certainly not like in the, you know, on the radio today. And, you know, People just couldn't really believe it, right? And so they booked her quickly on MTV Unplugged. 
Um, and as I mentioned, MTV Unplugged, you know, it provided a, you know, it was an intimate sort of venue. The show presented artists in a very stripped setting without studio equipment. So it was supposed to provide like the most real sort of experience. So she goes on MTV Unplugged and she's preparing to do this song. This song is called um, If It's Over. And If It's Over was co-written with Carol King. And I really love this song. It, like I mentioned, it was on the Emotions album. It was set to be, it was released as a single, didn't really do anything. Um, the way the song came about was during the promotion for M- Mariah Carey, the, the first album. Uh, Mariah famously went on Arsenio Hall's show and performed Vision of Love. And mm-hmm. it was, I believe, and I could be wrong, I'll have to check, I believe it was her first television appearance. I think so. I I, I believe in my heart mm-hmm. that I watched that performance live when it brought first broadcast. Mm-hmm. People did not know how, like, they lost their minds. I mean, she, here was this skinny sort of biracial girl, <laughs> you know, belting and hitting these notes and like you can see it if you you can look it up on youtube i mean it was an amazing performance well carol king was watching that performance at home and was like i need to work with her and she'd like heard um you know mariah talking about how she you know her writing and and you know writing writing these different songs and um so while mariah was in the studio recording her second album emotions Carol King reached out to her and asked if she'd be interested in covering You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which, you know, obviously is one of her most iconic songs, made even more famous and iconic by Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. At the time, Mariah declined because she idolized Aretha and did not want to, or she felt really uneasy about covering a song that, you know, in her mind had been done perfectly. But Carol King really wanted to work with Mariah. And so she ended up flying out to New York for a day from her home in Idaho. Idaho? Yeah, she was living in Idaho at the time and flew out for the day in hopes of writing and composing a ballad of some kind with Mariah. They kept going back and forth, back and forth until they came up with this song, If It's Over. And it's sort of a bluesy, jazzy, down-tempo ballad. But I love it. It's so, you know, unlike a lot of the songs that had come out at the time from Mariah to that point, you know, so much was made of her whistle register Mm -hmm. and so much was made of, you know, her vocal range. If it's over, kind of sits a little bit lower in her voice. She, she, She really explores her lower register. It brings in bass and horns in a way that was just not this sort of slick you know, the slick sort of early 90s pop production that was really prevalent on her on her first albums. And it wasn't at the time. I mean, people were blown away by her voice, but there were a lot of critiques of her her music at the time of being really kind of sanitized and just sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, devoid of passion and grit. They were just like scrubbed squeaky clean and, you know, kind of sterile. So Emotions came out. If it's over, you could tell they were priming it to be the next single from the album. She performed it multiple times live. She performed it on Saturday Night Live. 
She performed it at the Grammy Awards in 1992. Um, And then she ended up performing it on MTV's Unplugged, which is how I heard it. The song really didn't do anything. It was, you know, she was lauded for her performances because it was different and it showed a little bit more range, but like it really didn't do anything. And so what ended up happening was on Unplugged, a tradition of the artists who'd been on Unplugged was that they did a cover. Mm-hmm. And Mariah hadn't really done a cover, I don't believe, at that point. And so they, a few days before the show went to tape, they decided to cover Jackson 5's I'll Be There. Mm-hmm. So I'll Be There gets put on the album, and it's a huge smash, mm-hmm. right? It compl- it was it was it's an iconic performance. It still gets played to this day. You can hear it, you know, on the radio. They still play it. The record company was not prepared. They did not anticipate that a cover would be essentially the lead single from MTV's Unplugged. I mean, they just they were expecting it to be if it's over. Mm. So they had to pivot really quickly and put out. I'll be there, oh. which became a huge single and went to number one. And if it's over, just ended up disappearing completely. They stopped promoting emotions the whole album after that. Mm. Like they just stopped. They were like, mm. I mean, that's interesting because I, you know, obviously at some point later on, Mariah Carey ends up having so many number one hits that she can comprise an entire greatest hits album out of number ones. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, everything up to that point had just been golden, mm-hmm. you know? So it's interesting to hear that Emotions was a little bit of a hiccup, at least mm-hmm. for her record label. Yeah. Or from their point of view. Because, yeah, it's funny, like, I'm looking at the track listings now, and I I think I had been talking to you before about Can't Let Go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, which was the second single it was actually the second single before Make It Happen, mm-hmm. but it only reached number two mm-hmm. on the Hot 100. Um, so it's interesting when we're talking about artists like Kelly Clarkson or Mariah Carey, that these type of hiccups that for any other artist would be a huge win mm-hmm. are not treated as such. Yeah. It's like, Oh my gosh, Mariah Carey has a number two. Oh no, she has a number eight. They're looking at that trend of that Mm -hmm. graph and they're like, her next single is going to be like 16, then 32. Well, yeah. And you know what's interesting? So I do need to make a correction. So I had said that Make It Happen had had hit like eight. It actually hit uh, number five on the chart. But, you know, I mentioned Mariah Carey had sold 15 million copies of her first album. Mm -hmm. In contrast... They only sold four million of emotions. Ooh. So it had dropped by like a third, essentially more than a third. It was basically a flop. Total flop. Four million albums. Can you imagine? It was certified quadruple platinum and it was it was a disaster. <laughs> um, it sold eight million copies worldwide. It was a disaster. So, you know, they tried to pivot. They did the they did MTV's Unplugged, Mm -hmm. had a runaway hit with I'll Be There. They essentially shelved everything else. And immediately after that, that was 1993, later they released Music Box, right? So she went back to work on Music Mm -hmm. Box. Music Box was pure adult contemporary pop. They stuck, they went back to the formula of the first album. Mm. It continues to be 
I believe one of the highest selling albums of all time. She sold 28 million copies of Music Box. I mean, that album has that album has the hits. Yeah. Yeah, it has <laughs> it has the hits. You have Dream Lover. Dream Lover was the next single and you know, the rest is history. Uh, you know. Yeah. You know it's interesting um speaking about Unplugged. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the idea that the runaway success of I'll Be There was really unexpected that like a cover would really kick off this huge success. And in my head, I was like, but wait, like a lot of the MTV unplugged hits that I remember were actually the covers. Like Mm -hmm. 10,000 Maniacs had um, Because the Night, Mm -hmm. uh, Nirvana had The Man man Who Sold the World. Is that the Mm -hmm. David Bowie song? Yeah, I think so. But I... It's it's interesting because I think that that was something that was almost uniquely the product of MTV's Unplugged. Mm-hmm. Almost, I mean, to take it back to Kelly Clarkson, it's like there is something special about American Idol when you're seeing something live on television to see someone replicate a song in a really amazing and often unique way mm-hmm. that you don't feel when it's like a studio cover version. Oh, for sure. And in doing some of the research on this, her episode of Mariah's episode of Unplugged was such a game changer for her, right? People could no longer deny that she, you know, people could no longer say that she was a studio act only. Mm -hmm. They really connected. That episode ended up being played. It was aired more than three times as often as the average episode of Unplugged because it was just in such demand. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it was just iconic. It changed it changed her career and it changed everyone's perception of her. And she was a legit... Yeah. She was taken as a legit success from that point on. And so it's funny as we talk about these flops because we're not really playing them to, like, describe... It's hard for me to describe this song, but... We need, our mu- we need to work on our musical adjectives and... Uh... <laughs> well, and... Yeah, and so I think... Anyway, continue Yeah, continue to describe. <laughs> yeah, so I think what's interesting about the song is... So, as I said, Carol had reached out to Mariah to cover, initially to cover Natural Woman. Mm-hmm. And Mariah, you know, uh, rightfully so, I think, was like, eh, it's okay. I'm not going to try it, you know. I'm, <laughs> Aretha's still a force. I'm not going to poke a bear, you know. And... I think, which I also think is really weird that Carol King would even suggest it. Just, it just seems when you give an icon like Aretha a song Mm -hmm. and it becomes super iconic, not just for you, but for that person. And that person is Aretha that you would then go to someone else and say, would you like to do this song? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it just seems it's kind of strange. But I mean, but maybe that speaks to... What Carol King saw in Mariah that she felt that she maybe thought like maybe Mariah can bring something new to this song that everyone knows. I think so. But I think knowing what we know about Aretha, the idea that someone would be like, I mean, Aretha Franklin had no trouble um, covering touch my body. Well, Aretha Franklin was notorious for re-recording songs that she had initially passed because she thought they were beneath them Mm. and then other female artists recorded them they became hits and she felt she's like no 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 i could do this better and she goes did she do dion warwick dirty 
Uh-huh. Was say a little say a little prayer? Was mm-hmm. that was that like a direct attack on Dion Warwick? Okay, look, allegedly, I'm going to. This is what I have read, and I do need to go back and back it up. But there's also, you know, her version of "Son of a Preacher Man," which hmm, Dusty still got the good one. Yeah, you know, like it's it. There's you can go back. You can. There's all these instances of songs that like the the one that we really like came out already. <laughs> what i find interesting is that if it's over ends up sounding like a natural sort of uh follow-up to natural woman Mm. it is starts with a piano it's very piano-y there's you know it's like i said it's sort of bluesy uh with some jazz and soul influences there and it's it's just this beautiful ballad and it's it has the feel of natural woman. Mm-hmm. So it, it, what it sounds to me is like, this was the song that since they couldn't do natural woman, they created something like that for Mariah. And I think it's a shame it never got the credit that it deserved. Because if you watch, because she clearly put a lot of effort again into these performances because of the criticisms that she'd received up to that point about being possibly just a studio artist and being sort of sterile and impassionate when she sings. Mm -hmm. This song brings everything out of her. It combines all of Mariah's talents for drama, for range, for emotive expression with a backing track that has, you know, a full set of like backup singers, not just nine Mariah's stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. It has horns It has a full band, you know, and I don't think that really any of her other songs have that feel. It is an outlier for her. And, you know, she really wanted it to be there to prove that she could do this. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she's sad that I'll Be There ended up being the runaway hit. I think that did what it had to do. Yeah. But I think clearly the fact that she performed it on SNL she perf- and and uh Linda Hamilton was the guest st- star on uh, on SNL who introduced her. Is that Terminator? Terminator, yeah. Okay. Former Mrs. James Cameron. Oh, okay. Um or one of them. <laughs> and uh you know, and then she performed it at the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Like she was this was going to be her song. And now we don't you know no one knows about it. So I think for an artist like Mariah Carey, this is my flop that I will always stand. And um, I look forward to posting the song and posting some of these live performances because I yeah. think, you know, it's really interesting. I have a a, a much younger half sister. And when we were, we were chatting about Mariah at one point and, you know, I got the sense that she thought we belong together was her first single. Oh, I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, she'd had a whole career before that. but The last big hit before We Belong Together was, uh, what was the song where she was beating up her brunette self in the bathroom? Heartbreaker. Oh, Heartbreaker, which I love. Wasn't that like, yeah. Wasn't that like, that was kind of no. like. No. No, I don't think so. Oh, we're going, we're going, comple- we're going completely off into. You've, you've missed it because I think Heartbreaker came well before because it came before Glitter and before Charm Bracelet. Yeah. It and was, then We Belong Together came after that. I mean, I guess, because, uh, okay, Rainbow Rainbow was 1999. Mm-hmm. 
single number one was Heartbreaker. Second number, single mm-hmm. number two was Thank God I Found You. Yeah, and then that didn't really do well until they invited Joe. Oh, and Joe. I think 98 Degrees. <laughs> oh, God, 98 Degrees. Um, oh, single number three, Can't Take That Away, parentheses, Mariah's mm-hmm. Theme, Cry Baby, mm-hmm. and Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now. Mm-hmm. So she really got into the into the covers game, you know, fairly early on. Because, so she had a cover with... I'll be there. Became a huge hit on uh, Music Box. She covered um, "Without You." Oh, that's right. By Badfinger. I didn't know who Badfinger was, but like she covered "Without You" and she covered Harry Nilsson. Right? Was it? Oh no, was that J- is "Without You" the song that is um, popularly known as Ken Lee? Yeah, Ken. Yes. Yeah. Popular tune, Ken Lee. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so she did that, and then on Daydream, she had. Um, not take a look at me now. It was a. Uh, this is like the great Mariah quiz. Open arms. Wait, what was it? Sorry, she had open arms. Four okay. in her open arms, and then daydream, or not? That was daydream. Butterfly. F- butterfly was butterfly. She covered, um, Prince. She covered the beautiful ones. Oh, okay. Yep. And then rainbow. She covered, uh, the, yeah, the, which yeah, Genesis was it? Genesis Phil Phil. Whatever his Phil name. Collins. Oh, God. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Right? Yeah. I know. I really don't like Phil Collins. Um, Glitter. What was the cover <laughs> on Glitter? I mean, they were all covers, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the cover was on Glitter. Wasn't um, uh... Last Night a DJ Saved My Life? But that's just. Yeah. No, that's completely a cover. Yeah. Okay. I didn't. Yeah. yeah. So she did that. But like, uh, there were a lot of like samples and stuff on mm-hmm. Glitter. Yeah. And then I, you know, I don't know that she really kept it up after that like on charm bracelet i i never you know as much as i'm a huge fan well i did not have charm bracelet had bringing on the heartbreak that's right the um yes and that is um which i kind of like i love that song who did the bringing on the heartbreak who did the original of that that was like a it was a deaf leopard wasn't it deaf leopard yeah and then she did because I forget what was on the Emancipation of Mimi. Is there a cover on Emancipation? So what ended up happening was she transitioned to having like a last song, which was like a sort of gospel-y thing. Mm. Like, because she had Fly Like a Bird. Mm-hmm. So instead of having covers, she had these sort of like Mariah affirmations. Yeah. About how like she's going to overcome. You know, and she needed it. She needed it at the time. She did. And I mean, I still, I still do like them, but they really only take off in literally the last 10 seconds (laughs) of the song. And that's the only part that I ever want to replay. Three minutes and 20 seconds of vocal musing followed by (laughs) liftoff. Yes. And then it's like, okay, because it's literally at this point, the only time she can hit the whistle register. It's the only time she can like, you know, really belt because the rest of it she's just doing the gravel and then the whisper yeah and so i mean i love her i think this song i don't know so you know my perception of mariah in those first like four or five albums of hers in her career was really that she was just unstoppably releasing hits and i never thought about um you know the formula that maybe she Mm -hmm. was expected to follow in mm-hmm. order to create a hit album, right? That yeah. there were just certain things that they wanted from Mariah in terms of her image or in terms of the songs that she was releasing. I feel like as we move later on into the 90s and into the early 2000s, 
mm-hmm. generally speaking, like her her ballads aren't the focus as much. Yeah. So you were talking about Kelly Clarkson and how Never Again was sort of the product of the struggle that she was having with both her label and specifically Clive Davis. And then, you know, personal conflict in her life. And, you know, Unplugged Mm -hmm. was sort of a response at the time to, you know, issues that the label was seeing with Mariah's performance and just issues of her authenticity and whether or not she could do the things that she wanted to do. At the time, I mean, this was still very early on in her career, so she was still, you know, she was with Tommy Mottola, Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, the sort of Clive Davis of her life that was, like, really dictating the kinds of music that she would end up doing. Because I think the reason people think that, you know, we belong together and all of that stuff is a completely different Mariah. It's because it was. I mean, yeah. this whole adult contemporary pop Mariah is really not who she is, which she started to show, you know, with uh, Butterfly. Yeah, you see that part of her evolve uh-huh. as the 90s continue. Uh-huh that the kind of you know the the curly haired girl next door mariah that puts her hair in little pigtails and wears a, a men's flannel top and little denim shorts yeah or the off the shoulder kind of black kelly bundy top like that was n- maybe never her you get to the you get to the point where she's wearing like you know what is it like a gucci mini dress yes a gucci strapless mini dress with fully fully flat ironed hair and that's mariah being like this is who i am yeah right like on the snl performance of if it's over she's wearing pants and a jacket (laughs) right like you can't see nothing of her and she has her curly hair which i loved i wish she would go back to i loved that curly hair but like she is clothed not just in a top, but with a leather jacket. Yeah. Like, this is gonna sound shady, but I like Mariah with curly hair because I feel like it balances out her head and her body. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. In the way that in the way that like drag because she's like a she's like she's a, a tall woman. She's like five ten. She's she's like a broad, broad shouldered mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. I think in the way that drag queens sometimes have to wear very large wigs mm-hmm. to give themselves a more like woman like mm-hmm. proportion. I feel like Mariah with perfectly like that, especially that late nineties, super flat hair. Mm -hmm. It just threw off her proportions with me. And I I think that there really was, there really was something to that Tommy Mottola vision of her Mm -hmm. of like, isn't this like 19 year old girl with this undiscovered voice that just looks so crunchy and natural and granola. Mm -hmm. Isn't she the best? Like don't, don't you just want to like invite her into your home? Well, it's interesting because it came out like she was pitched as Columbia's response to Whitney Houston. Oh, and they did the same thing to Whitney, right? Like Exactly. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like it was, it's the packaging of what we now in some ways, cons- well, it was sort of like the packaging of like black music for white audiences. Oh yeah. Right. Tale as old as time. Around the, the same time that I'm talking about, you know, Mariah's, Emotions coming out. What was also on the charts in 1992? Um, this so so I'll be there. I mentioned hit number one. 
Number two was Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot. Classic. Jump by Criss Cross. Amazing. Under the Bridge, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay. Never Gonna Get It, My Lovin' by En Vogue. Oh, so good. Uh, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover, Sophie B. Hawkins. Great. And If You Asked Me To by Celine Dion. Achy Breaky Heart by Billy Ray Cyrus. Career killer. Tennessee, Arrested Development. Amazing. Right? Um, and then 10 was The Best Things in Life Are Free, Luther Vandross and Janet Jackson. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Get, mm-hmm. I, ooh. Is <laughs> Sorry, it, that, so, oh, all right? the songs you just listened That song, I had the Mo Money soundtrack on tape. <laughs> I love that song. That song's amazing. I, oh. I, I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna put I'm gonna put that song on our website. Well, there you go. That that's amazing. I wish that I had actually looked up the Kelly uh, <laughs> the chart comparisons for Kelly Clarkson. Well, it's 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 I, the reason I bring it up is because it's you know we we tend to look at these things as sort of like on their own, but you think about like all of this other stuff was going on, mm-hmm. and it's like none of those other artists broke through. I mean, not that they didn't break through, but like Mariah was a singular sort of thing, and there was a very clear divide between hip-hop R&B, and pop, Mm -hmm. right? And so here's this woman that's singing ostensibly sort of R&B, what we thought of as R&B, but packaged for pop, right? And you look at someone like Celine Dion, kind of, you know, her vocal stylings are, I mean, they're very Celine Dion and they're what we associate with sort of this adult contemporary diva Mm -hmm. type of thing now, but that didn't exist at the time. It was also being packaged, like, in this it's like palatable right mm-hmm. like it's at this time when it was becoming palatable with these like really big singers doing these kinds of runs and things that traditionally only been the soul or gospel singers and now you know you have it like repackaged i mean you keep going down jodeci come and talk to me was number 16 ain't too proud to beg by tlc mm. and then rounding out the top 20 um I will remember you by Amy Grant. I don't even know that one. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that Amy Grant ever did anything past uh, "Baby, Baby." Is that what that song was called? So you will not remember her, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> also, "Life Is a Highway" was number nineteen. I thought "Life Is a Highway" was much older than that. Wait, who sings that song? Tom Cochran. It's like love. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that song is that. Right? I mean, recent. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was much older. One by U2 with number 25. Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton. Oh, this is, I mean, these are these are these, these are all oldies now, right? So. They're all oldies, but you know, it's just I just think it's all interesting. So anyway, that's an insight into the flop by one of my favorite artists of all time, Mariah Carey. Amazing. Love it. Window into my soul, you know. <laughs> Love me or um, leave me. Yeah, I know that. That was good. I like that. What have we learned? I don't know what we've learned. <laughs> what have you learned? What did you learn? Well, I think that one takeaway from this week's episode was... A combination of how easy it is for me to talk a lot about an artist that I love, but also the pressure that I felt in terms of trying to get it right, trying to do that song justice. Like I didn't want to speak any mistruths about Kelly Clarkson. I didn't want to misrepresent anything 
or, you know, in a way, like I, I, I don't want to represent anything in a bad light for an artist that I really, 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 really like. Mm-hmm. In terms of parallels in what we were talking about, you know, I think it's interesting to, in retrospect, kind of see the outlines of their tra- their career trajectories at that point and how seemingly panic can set in and how a change of course can kind of be brought out mm-hmm. from those experiences, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that for both of us talking about, you know, Kelly Clarkson and Mariah Carey, how little it can take before it looks it looks like you're a has-been mm-hmm. or how, how quickly people kind of will jump to that conclusion mm-hmm. when you have like a little falter or you just do something that people weren't expecting and people don't come along with you yeah. for that ride. Yeah. How about you? I think one of the things that I learned was just how difficult it is to choose an artist, like a singular artist or a singular song and talk about how that, I guess, how do I say? Well, okay. So like, what was your strategy in terms of picking this song to represent your kind of musical tastes or viewpoint? My strategy in picking the song kind of revealed just how fraught our relationship with music can be. Even in something like this, where it's just, we're two friends talking with ostensibly some of our friends listening. You know, the pressure to pick an artist that I both love but like I felt represented me mm-hmm. and to try and keep whatever I think other people's perceptions of that artist are. So like in my instance, it's Mariah Carey. And I think, you know, we're now almost 30 years into her career and the Mariah Carey of today is very different from the Mariah Carey of 30 years ago yeah. when I first encountered her. And, you know, I, I jokingly said at the beginning, oh, how, how breathtaking one of the gays on this podcast loves Mariah Carey, you know, it's groundbreaking. But I think that from my perspective, your fandom of Mariah Carey goes above and beyond because I I like Mariah Carey. I, I, I've liked Mm -hmm. a lot of her music, Mm -hmm. but I think between the two of us, I would more strongly identify Mariah Carey with you. I would more strongly identify Mariah Carey with you than I would with, the majority of our friends. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and that's where, I mean, for myself in terms of choosing to talk about Kelly Clarkson, I don't know that Kelly Clarkson is representative really of where my musical tastes are at. But I think that again, in terms of people, we know our friends, whatever I'm, I'm the Kelly Clarkson fan. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I, so in that in that sense, she is kind of emblematic of my musical tastes, but not all encompassing. Yeah. And I think, I think, yeah. And I think that that will come about, I think that'll come about more and more, the more songs that we talk about that we're going to be covering a lot of different people from a lot of different genres with a lot of different styles. And there's different reasons that we like them. And I think, you know, you kind of, you you kind of brought me back to kind of where I was trying to go with that. It's like, yes, Mariah is probably the, She's probably the one that I can speak about more and she's, you know, she's someone that I have a really long history with and that I admire for a lot of reasons. But it's also, she's kind of polarizing at this point for a lot of people, I think, you know? And Mm -hmm. not only is she polarizing, I I think it's just, 
it really sh- it really ties in with when you were talking earlier about how the flops really show what a fine line it is for these people who are incredibly successful to suddenly maybe be a has-been or a flop. Um, it shows how personal that can be, right? Like, mm-hmm. even for us, like, I don't, like, I also love Jill Scott. And, like, I love, like, you know, these alternative artists. And, like, I was really torn with, with this particular episode being the first to go with someone as quote unquote, maybe, or maybe quote unquote basic as Mariah Carey. When I feel like there are maybe other artists that would show that I have like more nuanced takes on music or like richer interests or whatever, you know, that judgment kind of comes in. Yeah. And I think that really, I think it's really apropos as we talk about flops and like, you know, trying to give uh, artists a second chance. It's like so much, so much of the reason that like these singles were not hits for these artists is because the audience was like, eh, that's not what I want with this person. Right. It's like yeah. not allowing them to be multidimensional and have other and show other aspects of themselves. You know, even if it was, you know, professionally and personally fulfilling for them commercially, it wasn't. And so they, they did have to pivot. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it all kind of relates. It's, it's, you know, the art for the artists as it is for the audience, right? Like, and who we, who we want to talk about. And so, yeah. you know, I was, I, I was think really there's time t- in the future to be nuanced. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that for right now, you know, we're painting in bold strokes. Yeah, you know? for sure. And um, again, yeah, I think that'll become clear over time. And mostly, I mean, you know, I think we're going to cover a lot of ground in terms of genres, in terms of artists. And I think that over time, it'll become clear that there is no singular way to identify what it is that either one of us will like. Mm-hmm. There's always, there's always just gotta be something to it that we can identify with or that we can say like, yeah, like that gets my head bopping or, Oh yeah, that made me feel a certain way or mm-hmm. I relate it to this, that or the other experience in my life. Yeah. You know, and we're not, we're not two dimensional, you know, we're possibly three three-dimensional are yeah we th- are we three dimensions i think so wait are we are we in four dimensions i mean we're experiencing time <laughs> is is smell a fourth direction i don't know direction i said direction i just know that you're not supposed to say something's one dimensional because that doesn't exist or something yeah i don't know i learned that on an episode of bones but um <laughs> so that could actually be factually incorrect two-dimensional is as small as you want to be <laughs> so i think that's it that's it for us for this week this was fun. Uh, remember to subscribe, rate, and review. You can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are available. You can find us on social um, at, Flop, at Flop Redeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at www.facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. Um, any supplemental content, any of the songs that we talked about, any of the YouTube videos we may have talked about, we are going to try and post those to our website per, per episode at uh, flopperdeemer.com. So go check us out over there. I hope that my previous life as a web developer will come in handy in getting a website up and running and fully functioning. Um, so that's it for this week. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry.